which many people say is the tipping point state. So we could easily see a scenario where we're really waiting on Pennsylvania um, and both candidates look like if they can get Pennsylvania, they will um, wind up uh, with 270 or either. So even if we don't have a winner right on November 3rd, Niles echoed Arnon in urging all of us to be patient. There are a ton of mail-in ballots and they're all going to take, and they're going to take a long time to be counted. So just be patient is my advice to everyone. Just be patient. Well, you can't say we didn't warn you. Right now, one week after Election Day, and a few states are still counting votes. This is a live look at the White House. The last time you heard from me on this podcast, my guests and I emphasized that it could be weeks before the results of the 2020 presidential race would become clear. That ended up being half true. We didn't have a winner on election night. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. But now it's been more than a week since most major news organizations declared Joe Biden as the president-elect. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. The news is elected. The can now project. NBC News now projects Joe that Joe Biden has Joe won Biden the Keystone has State won the American presidential election. As of this recording on Sunday, November 15th, President Trump and his legal teams are continuing to challenge the results in a number of states. President Trump is refusing to accept defeat in the election. With his today, President Trump tweeted ballot counting abuse. He still says that he will win the 2020 today election. Today, as President-elect Joe Biden started to put together his transition still no team. evidence There's of any significant voter fraud in the presidential election, but President Trump still won't concede. Our White House team Other reporting. story breaking as we came on tonight. News from the Pentagon now. Just 24 hours after President Trump fired his defense secretary in a tweet, Reports at least three more top officials are now out. And the president-elect Joe Biden was asked today what he would say to Americans about what they're witnessing. A president who won't concede. ABC's Mary Bruce right there asking the question. anxious over the fact that President Trump has yet to concede and what that might mean for the country. Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, if he is watching right now, what would you say to him? Mr. President, look forward to speaking with you. What options are you considering? How will you uh, move ahead if the president continues to refuse to concede? We're going to do exactly what we'd be doing if he had conceded and said we've won, which we have. Uh, and so there's nothing really changing. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and this is Wake Up to Politics. Even as Biden prepares to assume the White House on January 20th, President Donald Trump has yet to concede the race and acknowledge his defeat. And at the president's orders, his administration is refusing to cooperate with the transition team Joe Biden has set up. That refusal is pretty much unprecedented territory for the American presidency. And it's unclear what it will mean for Joe Biden as he continues to prepare to take office. Hey, can you hear me? Gabe? Yes. To put that into context of past transfers of power, I called up an expert on presidential transitions. Well, it certainly isn't dull times, is it? <laughs> no, Martha Joint-Kumar is the director of the White House Transition Project, an outside group of scholars that advises incoming administrations. So our work is, is uh, presenting information to people. It's not telling people uh, how they should organize 
um, how they should do their work. Uh, we simply tell them what the patterns have been over the years and what things have worked and what things haven't. Presidential transitions are huge enterprises. Well, if you, if you look at the type um, of uh, the kinds of appointments that you have to make over an administration, maybe there are 4,000 uh, appointments, but you're going to focus at the beginning on those that you think are the most important. That's right. Joe Biden has about two more months to pick the 4,000 people who will be running our country for the next four years. That's about 1,000 appointees who require Senate confirmation, your cabinet secretaries, their deputies, ambassadors, and so on, plus 500 White House staff positions, like chief of staff or national security advisor, and then about 700 senior executives, like the chiefs of staffs in all the agencies, and then about 2,000 more appointees who will fill other roles shaping policies and helping assist the more senior leaders at each agency. It's a tough job, but it doesn't just start when the election ends. So you have the, so the transition operation, we are looking at it um, now and thinking it's just beginning, but in fact it's begun long, uh, long ago, um, at least six months earlier. There didn't used to be much infrastructure in place to dictate how presidential transitions would work. But the passage of the Presidential Transitions Improvement Act of 2015 created a more formal process. That law was named after two men, Ted Kaufman and Michael Levitt. Both of them hold interesting places in transition history. Kaufman made improving transitions a key priority of his while briefly serving as a U.S. senator from Delaware. Interestingly, five years later, he now leads Joe Biden's transition team. Levitt, on the other hand, chaired Mitt Romney's transition team in 2012. Levitt led a staff of 300 people who worked tirelessly on mapping out an eventual Romney administration. Months of work that went out the window the minute Romney lost. But even if a candidate ends up losing, it's important for the campaigns and the White House to start working early to make sure a potential handoff goes smoothly. You need to gather information from the departments and agencies before you can think through, um, uh, in part, who those deputies are going to be to the cabinet secretaries because you'll need to know what the problems are, what programs they're working on, what the status of the programs are, uh, what um, scheduled events there will be uh, in the department that the secretary will be involved in, as, as well as the deputies and assistant secretaries. Now it is an all-of-government operation because all of the departments and agencies are involved in one way or another with a uh, transition. Of course, this is all predicated on the assumption that the outgoing administration will acknowledge that they are outgoing and will work hand-in-hand with the new team coming in. That process is supposed to be kicked off by a letter from the General Services Administration. When the administrator, uh, who is a woman named Emily Murphy, determines that uh, that Joseph Biden is indeed the president-elect, then the, uh, the, the government funds that have been um, allocated for transition, $9.9 million, that um, that money is then provided to the uh, president-elect for 
staff to pay for staff, travel, um, consultancies that they may have. But Murphy, following President Trump's lead, hasn't signed that letter yet, which puts the transition in uncharted territory. So for now, Biden has essentially set up a shadow transition, complete with his own coronavirus task force and his own funding to make up for the lack of government money he would otherwise be receiving. If the president-elect, as was the as is the case with Joseph Biden, um, they can create an earlier uh, operation themselves if they want and raise private money, and they have done that. So their goal was to raise seven million dollars, and uh, and they have surpassed that. So they have been able to um, uh, to provide uh, money for staffing. But what they haven't been able to do is they haven't gotten the information that all those departments and agencies put together about the operation of the agencies, about personnel, about budgets, schedules, programs that they're working on, implementation of, in, of legislation, rules and regulations that are involved with the departments. There's no precedent for an outgoing president refusing to acknowledge the president-elect. But there is one precedent in modern history for a delay in a president-elect being formally declared. Uh, there had to be the winner declared, and that didn't happen until mid-December in, uh, in 2000. So that uh, President George W. Bush, President-elect George W. Bush, uh, did not uh, get that title until then. And before then, he had no government services, so he had to raise money and then create his own transition operation uh, and then uh, choose his cabinet secretaries without any of the briefing materials and knowing what was going on in the departments and agencies. The delay in 2000 was for a very different reason. Legitimate lack of clarity in the election results. That year, Bush and Democratic rival Al Gore were locked in a legal fight for weeks over who got the most votes in Florida, a state that both men needed to win. An election in turmoil, a presidency in the balance, a nation waits. Who will emerge Welcome the winner? Welcome to our program. In Here in Florida, the presidential contest gets tighter by the hour. With the new counts going on, ABC News has an unofficial tally now that George Bush leads by 279 votes. That's unofficial, but it's very close. And last night, in the middle of the night, in Palm Beach County, election officials decided to count all of the ballots by hand. That's more than 400,000 votes. But the end result was the same. A president-elect not getting the briefings or resources he needs before taking the world's most important office. And that has transition experts like Martha Kumar worried there could be similarly disastrous consequences. In the period after the attacks of September 11th, at that time, it, uh, it was obvious at the, uh, at the time of the attacks that um, that delayed transition had had some impact on the president's uh, ability to get people confirmed by the Senate uh, so that they could uh, take their leadership positions. There are uh, approximately 1,200 positions that um, require Senate confirmation. We heard it and and 
because I was just like standing there pretty much looking out the window. I didn't see what caused it or if there was an impact. So you have no idea right oh, now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right? Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. And uh, the 9-11 Commission uh, pointed out that um, the transitions start off slowly and that um, uh, there should be some advanced work done to make sure that people that were going into national security areas uh, had their uh, security clearances done prior to the election. So, so now, in some ways, like, would you say like the delayed transition, it, it can be something of a national security threat? Yes. Um, yes, because you don't have, uh, because you uh, don't have uh, people in place um, you end up with a, um, uh, it's a very volatile time uh, where uh, continuity in government is, um, is not assured. The 9-11 Commission concluded that there was a direct link between the U.S. government missing the threat of the September 11th attacks and President Bush's delayed transition process just a few months earlier. Their report showed that what goes on in a presidential transition isn't just symbolic, it can set the tone for the whole rest of an administration. The difference between a full transition and a truncated one can be the difference between having prepared and informed officials ready to take office on day one or having an entire administration scrambling once they get there. Warning is not good enough without the structure to put it into action. We all understood bin Laden's attempt to strike the homeland, but we never translated this knowledge into an effective defense of the country. Doing so would have complicated the terrorist calculation of the difficulty in succeeding in a vast open society that in effect was unprotected on September 11th. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and we'll have more of the Wake Up to Politics podcast after this. Here at St. Louis Public Radio, we are fortunate to benefit from the political expertise of Joe Manis, a veteran journalist and my editor here at the Wake Up to Politics podcast. I spoke to Joe last week to get some perspective from her on the transition process and what she's watching for as Joe Biden puts together his cabinet in the next few weeks. Doing that, because obviously we have a situation now, Joe Biden calls himself the president-elect, the media, as you said, is calling him the president-elect, but the GSA won't. And so what does that mean for them not giving him those services? What is kind of the... What, what does that look like? Well, for example, uh, Biden can't get access to um, any notes or any calls or anything that ha- that foreign leaders have made to the State Department or, let's say, uh, you know, embassies, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't get access to any of the uh, basic stuff from the different federal agencies and departments. I mean, as far as budgets... Uh, as far as basic projects that are ongoing, uh, stuff that he, that any president-elect would need to know. Now, one thing that helps Biden is that he was the former, he's the former vice president, was in office for eight years, 
from 2009 to the very beginning of 2017. So he already knows a lot about, A, how the federal government operates, which uh, departments and agencies he's particularly interested in. He knows most likely how things were operating in up until uh, the Trump administration took over. It's just that he doesn't know the nitty-gritty of what's been going on since uh, January 20th, 2017. Which has been a lot. <laughs> yes. It's been a fair amount. I mean, he knows what's in the news, or he knows what people have told him, off the record or not, uh, but he doesn't know the basics. And that's where, uh, if it was a nominee who had no, uh, mm -hmm. n none of this experience working out of the White House or dealing with uh, administration stuff, it might be more of an issue. Uh, some, though, do feel that this is dangerous uh, because what's happening is uh, the Trump administration not only is not giving the Biden administration any information, and they've barred their any of their employees, and we're talking tens of thousands, from cooperating, uh, it means that Biden, unless he has back channels, isn't aware of what sort of um, security threats you might have going on. Um, and especially and during that, a pandemic, we have obviously correct. there's a few correct. different crises going on that he has kind of he's flying blind a little bit. He's about to become the most powerful person in the world, and he's getting none of that information that he needs to be making those decisions in just a few months. Well, especially since Biden has made fighting the pandemic. Uh, one of his top issues. He's already set up a panda special pandemic task force. And um, so this does slow things down. And there are some experts, regardless of political party, who are concerned that this does put us, uh, the United States, that we're in a kind of a vulnerable situation. Mm -hmm. And if something really bad happens in the next 70 days, uh, Trump's administration is going to have to handle it. They're not communicating with the Biden administration. It's unclear how engaged Trump is right now because uh, he appears to be more focused on how he might be able to somehow reverse what's going on in those states, you know, the legal fights that are going mm -hmm. on that have so far been unsuccessful. Um, it's, it's just a lot of drama that, frankly... Um, I think all sides would agree has been a hallmark of the Trump administration. <laughs> and But it's drama that during a transition is not necessarily helpful. And I want to talk about that because obviously this is the first time in a few decades that we've had an incoming president come into office with divided government, without complete control of the House and the Senate. How, how do you think that changes the dynamics in Washington as Biden starts to fill his cabinet? Do you, Does that change some of the, you know, kind of hopes that a lot of progressives are having about who might make up his administration? Oh, huge. No question. No question. The progressives aren't going to get hardly anywhere if the Republicans have Senate control. Because before you, uh, you were seeing talk of Secretary Bernie Sanders, maybe Secretary Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, do you think there's any hope for that, for people who are looking no. for that, you know, now that there might be Republican Senate? No, Elizabeth Warren uh, wanted to be considered for Treasury Secretary. 
I mean, because she does have a lot of financial expertise and it had many ideas during the presidential campaign about how, how she would approach things regarding um, kickstarting the economy. Uh, although I, was, I wasn't sure she was going to get it anyway because she's from Massachusetts. And Massachusetts mm -hmm. right now has a Republican governor who, although he's been somewhat friendly to Biden, uh, Biden's not, I mean, if he's a Republican governor, he's not going to nominate a uh, Democratic replacement to Elizabeth Warren should she leave to join the administration. So I think that um, unless there was an excess of uh, Democratic senators, which, you know, some Democrats had hoped uh, if the Democrats took control of the Senate, um, any any aspirations of her or Bernie Sanders or anybody, any Democrat in the U.S. Senate, those are toast. I know you've covered um, a lot of transitions over the years as different outgoing presidents have kind of handed off to, to new presidents. Are there any that stick out to you in particular that maybe you see interesting parallels or just that, that you think um, listeners might, might enjoy hearing about from transitions through the years? Well, there's no parallel <laughs> to what's going on. <laughs> I was actually in the Post-Dispatch Washington Bureau back in, um, for part of 1979 and 1980 uh, and 81, when uh, then Democratic President Jimmy Carter lost his bid for a second term and was replaced by Ronald Reagan. But uh, that transition was fairly non-eventful, except for the standpoint that if, uh, history buffs may recall there were a bunch of hostages mm -hmm. in Iran and, um, and in fact U.S. hostages and that was one of the reasons some believe that Carter had lost because of that uh, the whole hostage mess in Iran and um, there was a deal cut to release them but uh, the Ayatollah wouldn't go through with it until um, the swearing in on uh, January 20th, 1981. Now, day one. Day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency and day one of freedom for 52 Americans. Though thousands of miles apart, these two historic events moved almost on parallel tracks today. The new president had not been in office an hour when the former hostages became free men and women again. And they are well along now on their trip to West Germany and eventually to home. Even before the hostages arrived, the American negotiating team in Algiers held its own party, popping the corks and a couple of bottles of champagne to mark the end of a long... Later this morning, after word was received that Iran had taken all the necessary steps to make the transfer of its assets possible, Mr. Carter could relax even more, although there was always the nagging doubt. It wasn't until the motorcade on their way to the capital that the president was able to tell the president-elect that the hostages were aboard planes and would be airborne in 15 or 20 minutes. But it would be longer. Finally, just before Mr. Carter got to Andrews Air Force Base for his trip home to planes, the hostages' departure was officially confirmed. They had taken off about a half an hour after he was no longer president. The timing could hardly have been accidental. Once the planes had left Iran's airspace, members of the Iran Working Group at the State Department could take their first sigh of relief and begin formally informing hostage families that everyone was out and safe. Relief, exhaustion... What was interesting is that even though Carter was no longer president, 
the Reagan administration allowed for him to greet the hostages as mm-hmm. they arrived back in the United States. They did not make it a political issue or embarrassed Carter. They allowed Carter to be the official emissary who welcomed them back in the United States. Um, and that, that was, a, frankly, a very classy move. And, uh, but yes, I'll never forget that, that that was such, it was a move in part to show the world that we knew how to hand off power. We were talking about kind of the symbolism of, you I mean, you were talking yeah. about Carter and Reagan and the handoff, you know, that what that shows to the rest of the world that you have two people from different parties and one beat the other, but still a civil and, and conciliatory handoff um, and just the, the symbolism of what that means for, for our country and what it, our reputation around the world. Yeah, I mean, it symbolizes for younger countries uh, or countries that are considered, quote, third world. I'm putting quotes around it. Um, how 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 it should be done it uh is a very reassuring to our allies around the world and even to our two major um, competitors around the world china and russia which have much more authoritarian governments um it's it's we've always been a contrast um that our peaceful handoff of power which goes back to george washington and I'm a big George Washington ophile. <laughs> I read a lot about him. Um, that's been the hallmark of our democracy, is the peaceful transfer of power. And uh, while it's expected to happen this time, uh, the um, this disputes during the transition where Biden can't get access to stuff, um, not just weakens us, potentially with our national security, it weakens our standing in the world. Mm. And uh, that's, I think, uh, something that even if, okay, Biden is definitely sworn in on January 20th or whatever, our standing will continue to be weakened. And if there are a lot of fights between Biden and the Republicans controlling the Senate, assuming that they keep control of the Senate, um, that's not going to help us either... Uh, with our allies or with our adversaries in the world because they'll see us as we'll just look like a country that doesn't can't even govern itself and so it's going to be very interesting how this goes forward and this is regardless of who biden puts in the various positions in some ways the symbolism right now is more important than the specifics Joe Manis and Martha Kumar for joining me on this week's episode. If you want to track Joe Biden's appointments and the other developments throughout the transition process, you can sign up for my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com. Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor, sound design, and mixing by Aaron Doerr. 